Welcome to Collective View Live, a series of talks with artists, writers, and thinkers produced by Shuffle Collective. To learn about our network for creative professionals, as well as our other programming, visit us at shuffle.do. Hi, my name is Lisa Meltzer-Penn. I'm the immediate past president of the California Writers Club San Francisco Peninsula Branch and the current readings coordinator. And we are so excited to be co-sponsoring this panel discussion on inclusion, confusion, and authenticity in writing, and to be partnering with Shuffle Collective to put it on. And I will turn it over to Shuffle to say a few words. Thank you, Lisa. Welcome everyone. My name is Anuj and I'm one of the founders of Shuffle Collective. We're also very excited to be hosting this panel tonight. With that, I'd love to introduce you to our host for the evening, Lizette Wanzer. Uh, Lizette is an award-winning author, writing coach, and a writing instructor. Her work appears in over 25 literary journals and books. She's the creator of the forthcoming anthology, Trauma, Tresses, and Truth, as well as a conference of the same name happening on August 7th and 8th. Lizette is the best, and Lizette, it's all yours now. Thank you, Anuz. Welcome everyone. Wow, we have over a hundred people here. Excellent. I'm hoping that we're gonna have a lively discussion tonight. And we're speaking about a very timely and incredibly important topic. I'm going to go ahead and start by introducing our panelists for this evening. Carla Brundage, if you could just raise your hand or nod your head or Great, thank you. Carla is, a, is an award-winning writer, author, and educator. A former public school teacher, senior policy analyst for the New York City Council and assistant VP at Sesame Workshop. Bay Area-based poet, activist, and educator with a passion for social justice. Carla is the editor of the Pacific Raven Press and the founder of West Oakland to West Africa International Poetry Exchange. Mathangi Sabramanian. Mathangi's work has appeared in the WashingtonPost.com, Ms. Magazine Digital, Zora, Al Jazeera, and many others. Maya Jeffra is a writer, visual artist, dancer, curator, and educator. Maya teaches writing, drama, anti-racist and cultural studies at Santa Clara University. They're also the founding editor and production designer for queer literary collaborative called Foglifter Press. David Bowles. David's a Mexican-American professor, author and translator. He's written over 40 books across styles and genres, including several award-winning titles. David's work has also been published in notable publications, including the New York Times and Strange Horizons. David has also worked on several TV and film projects and is the co-founder of the hashtag and activist movement Dignidad Literaria, which has negotiated greater Latinx representation in publishing. So welcome to all of our panelists. So we're going to start by talking about what identity and self-representation means in the context of writing. Gene Roddenberry understood, the Star Trek guy for those of you who don't know, 
understood the power of representation in film storytelling as a means of reframing attitudes and as a means of upending cultural norms. So what for you does representation mean in literary storytelling? My my good friend, Daniel Jose Older, a writer from Brooklyn, one time when he was asked about diversity and how important it was in representation, he said, look, I long for the day when we can just stop saying the word diversity. Representation is about recognizing the real world and peopling your work with the faces that exist in the world around you and doing so from a vantage point of somebody who is engaged civically and intellectually and emotionally with people from different backgrounds that live in your community. It's, it's about breaking out of the bubbles that we put ourselves in. One of the problems with representation is not just the fact that people are not including that multiplicity of backgrounds and faces and voices in their work, but that it's been going on so long and it's, you know, has kind of hedged out people from minoritized groups to the point that in order to get there, we first have to do a lot of heavy lifting to break down the barriers and fill the gaps in the stack of our bookstores and libraries and classrooms. And it's going to take us a long while. We're still in under 5% of books being published every year in the U.S. coming from writers from communities of color when we make up moving towards half of the population of this country. And there's a lot of work to be done, but it's work that's got to be done through writing and activism, but also through, frankly, pulling down older systems of doing things. And um, and it's a painful process for white hegemonic systems of publishing to, to move past. Who else wants to get in on that? I can speak... Um, I think representation can be life-changing. Personally, in my journey, there are markers of stories such as The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and Passing by Nella Larson that spoke directly to my own experience. And those markers, I feel, gave me room and gave me voice. And so this idea of representation and inclusivity Hearing from different voices is really important, even in the creative process as we grow and learn. Yeah, I, I realize that I'm here in uh, my role as moderator, but I must get this in. Uh, for myself, the first thing that representation and storytelling means for me is the chance and the safe space to represent ourselves in our own work. Publishers must stop expecting us to be backdrops and window dressings who are embodying roles and supporting roles from central casting. But they also must stop rewarding authors who use our stories and our pain, our struggles and our misunderstandings for their own gain, especially when, one, they're not a part of the communities about which they're writing. And they also have no meaningful or sustained connections within those communities. And in the case of cis white authors, even if they have forged significant ties with the community, they still have to account for and grapple with as they're creating uh, their white privilege when they're writing. 
Uh, and they have to make sure they've done their homework and their research. I think there are a lot of authors out there writing about us and they haven't done either of those things. Moving on. There's a saying in some literary circles, if all I see is me, I'm not looking far enough. What if anything does an author gain by writing about characters outside of their own ethnic or gender identity or their own cultural or even economic experience? What are the payoffs of doing that for the author? I think just to answer on a more intuitive level of with that question, there is the possibility of cultivating an empathy and a perspective that is far and wide reaching. And I think that's one of the goals of being a writer overall, right? I think a lot of people write to, to process experiences, not just their own, but what they see. And so when they write across difference, it can really expand their ability to empathize and, and to cultivate an empathy that moves well beyond their own experience as well. I think it makes them social agents. Of course, with that in mind, writing doesn't need to be commercialized. And I think quite often the sticky moment happens when there is economic gain or some kind of expression of power that happens as a result of the writing that has been done. And that's where it gets into dangerous territory. Because what you said, Lizette, if there's any kind of power taken away or some kind of gain made across that difference, it perpetuates hegemonic structures. And usually the dollar sign is one of the ways that primarily occurs, especially as David said, in this kind of white cis hegemonic publishing structure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To dovetail with what Maya is saying, this is one of the issues that Dignidad Literaria had with American Dirt. Almost exactly a year ago, we were in New York City with Macmillan having these conversations around how to pivot away from the problems we had with the book and talk about representation. But the reason the book sparked the controversy wasn't that a woman who wasn't Mexican or Mexican-American had decided to write about Mexico and the immigration problem on the border, because that kind of work, as Maya suggesting, could be beneficial both to that writer who's not from that um, background and to, to readers who might find access to those issues through her. The problem was, first of all, she did a really poor job. She did not do the, the work that that Lizette is talking about writers outside of the culture needing to do. It's not enough to study from afar. <laughs> she didn't live in Mexico among these people. It was also because she basically made $3 million before the book even like hit shelves. It was um, a, like just a baldly capitalist adventure that engaged all kinds of actors from, from Oprah Winfrey to uh, a host of other people who have a vested interest in certain books being anointed or ordained ahead of time as the book on such a subject that will make a lot of money. And all these mechanisms um, are in place in these backroom networks to ensure that happens and to reward the people who make it happen. It's no secret that the New York Times bestseller lists is manufactured by publishers and, and popular booksellers and publishing firms and so forth. It's a really icky situation. And of course, there are people who are who will say, that seems 
really greedy of people of color you know, to be complaining about the fact that other people are making money, write a better book. But none of this has to do with quality. There were markedly better books about the immigrant experience written by Latinas, for example, none of whom got even close to $100,000 as an advance, most of them under 50, most of them under 20, frankly. And that kind of economic disparity, that kind of using the story of a people to make money rather than as a part of allyship. I can imagine a different scenario where Janine Cummins had said, this is really important. Let me write a series of like blog entries, or let me do a, a journalistic series. And if she were investing um, in the community, or if she had said, okay, I got $3 million and I'm going to invest half of it in in that community, it's something along those lines, but there, there was nothing like that, um, nothing of any significance. I mean, she did donate some money to charity. Yeah. So the flip side of that is also that when people like us who come from these backgrounds, like David was saying, try to write books that do represent our reality and the diversity of our reality, we don't necessarily get the chance to even publish them, let alone benefit from them monetarily. So my latest book actually has a very diverse cast of characters, including queer and trans characters that are outside of my experience in terms of my sexuality, but very close to my experience in terms of my race and ethnicity. And the book did really well. I'm not, I didn't make a ton of money, but critically it did fine. But then I wasn't able to sell a book after that because the characters in it were not relatable, but the characters were very much part of my own experience. So dovetailing on what David and, and Maya are saying, who gets to decide what is relatable? Who gets to decide what is representation? And quite frankly, like if I had to suffer through a separate piece when I was in high school, like other people can read stories that they're not familiar with and characters that they're not familiar with. And like, I had never met, I had never hung out with the white boys who were in, what's it called? J.D. Salinger's book. I don't know why I'm blanking on it. Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye. I had never been to New York City when I read that book, but I was expected as a teenager to relate to that when I was the first generation daughter of immigrants who was like editing my parents' English when I was 12. So who's to say what's relatable and what's not and what's marketable and what's not? The frustrating thing for me is when I see, first of all, in the rare instance when I see my culture represented, it's not accurate often because it's what publishers think my culture and South Asian culture is. Second of all, whenever I get a book deal, the first thing I think about is I'm the South Asian title they're publishing. So how many of my friends didn't get book deals because I got this book deal, right? To see something like American Dirt do well is so frustrating because there's so many of us who have worked so hard to accurately represent characters that are within our experience, although maybe not the same identities as us. And we've done the work. And yet somehow our books are not marketable in this weird capitalist game of selling art, which also doesn't make any sense fundamentally. I'm seeing some pretty interesting questions here. I'm going to pick one of these because I think we can have some pretty good conversation around this one. This one, which is also related to another good one that was asked a bit earlier. Why castigate successful authors rather than work to get better advances for others. And I have a question dovetailing on that, which is how can we work harder to make sure that we're part of the backroom conversations that David was mentioning? 
obviously uh, the problem with that stance is castigating authors for their high advances is actually castigating the system that decides that one author per year deserves to get $3 million and that writer is typically white. And then a host of other writers don't deserve that. Bestsellers are made, they're manufactured. It's about the PR dollars that are invested. If you put five copies of a particular book in every single bookstore in the, the continental United States, that book is going to be a bestseller. And that's a decision that's made behind closed doors between big chains like uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, stuff like that. The, these things are manufactured. Now, they choose titles mm, that have that are similar to titles they've published in the past, that meet certain criteria that they feel are going to get a certain type of buzz. And so they perpetuate a particular kind of voice mm -hmm. to echo what Matthew was saying right now. And that is, and this voice becomes the, the underpinning of the national intellectual and artistic conversation. And it's a voice that up until very recently was completely just white And it. And anybody who's coming from, a tradition that's different and has a, a particular voice or writing style or story structure that doesn't ape the conventions that have just become homogenous and uh, normalized in this country is going to have editors and agents and so forth saying, well, I can't connect to this voice because they themselves are part of the system that perpetuates the, frankly, uh, the pablum that is fed to the American public. And it's a pablum that erases, elides, other voices. We think about the rise of white supremacy and white nationalism in this country. It's always been there, but like the, the openness of it, the like in your faceness of it in the past uh, decade or so. When children go to school and they read literature in which the mainly white faces are reflected and they only are reading whether they are white children or children from communities of color. They're only reading books in which white children are represented. It's, it's understandable. Two things will occur. Children from communities of color will begin to see themselves as unworthy of being part of that literary conversation and being on that national stage. And children who are white will become, begin to unconsciously see themselves as the default and to see into, and to see others as invisible, to not see them at all. All right, let me jump in here. This is another really good question I'm seeing here. It says, can you really blame the author, this is Janine Cummins, for getting a huge advance from a Dirt when that was the decision of the publisher? And so shouldn't our outrage be aimed at the publisher rather than the author? Who wants to take that? Yeah, I think it's aimed at the publisher, but it's also aimed at the author because she didn't do the work. Like in my last book, I have trans characters and I have queer characters and I'm not trans or queer, but I interviewed people who were trans. I interviewed people who were queer. I read life stories. I did activism with people from those communities to try to understand them. I did a lot of what David was talking about in terms of reciprocity. And now on the other side of it, I'm not Jim Bolahiri, but at least I'm someone who, if a South Asian author needs an agent's email, I can give them an agent's email. You know what I mean? So I, I, my problem with Cummings is not that she got a huge advance, it's that I see authors all the time who are doing the work, who are mentoring their communities and are getting $17,000 for a much better book, which is partly the publisher's fault. But it's partly also, if you have a platform, you have a responsibility 
particularly if your voice is one that's not often heard, I think. Maya, I see your hand up. Yeah, because this is not merely an issue of just the white perspective. It's also the issue of these people in positions of power making the choices also have very narrow views of what they consider to be the perspectives of a Black character, a trans character. And they might be celebrating writers outside of just the white default, but they're still using this very kind of narrow perception of what they think would constitute a successful representation of any of these other characters. I can't tell you how uh, disheartening it was growing up queer and the representations that were being greenlighted were AIDS patients, hustlers, drug addicts, and stylish confidants of lovelorn women. That was it. And it's and everything had to fit that mold, and it still does. Um, it's interesting how many times I've been told by an agent or a publisher, oh, your character, I, I don't know if it's going to connect with audiences. It, it, it's just rubbing a little too much against a grain of some kind. And yes. that, mm-hmm. that is very dangerous because what Matangi was saying earlier, it narrows the perspective of how culture views that entire group of people as well. I run, in, I run into that buzzsaw all the time. Anybody want to weigh in on this further? I, I could weigh in, but don't get me started because well, it makes me hugely enraged. And I can't tell you <laughs> how many times I've sent something out only to get notes back saying, oh, uh, we read your story, but then we looked at your LinkedIn and we didn't realize you were uh, African-American. Is there something you can do in the story to make it clear that these are... (laughs) I see David. Yeah, 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 that's the the whole... uh, Either either the the own voices work that I do, I've either gotten, this is too Mexican-American or this is not Mexican-American. Somebody somebody put a, a long message in the in the chat, and I just caught the end of it. And this idea of being, you know, an author being able to write whoever they they want to write. And I, I want to make it clear. And and I Lisette, you essentially said the same thing at the beginning. And, and I doubt that anybody on this panel disagrees with me. Writers, yes, writers can write outside of their experience. When I try to think of what, what my what I would feel like if all I could ever write was a a light-skinned pan bisexual Chicano and every single one of my protagonists had to be that. Yeah, I could, there's a lot I could do with that, but there are times when I write stories that are not quite that. Darker skinned Latinx people or an indigenous person from the past that represents some of my uh, family's indigenous heritage or whatever. And sometimes, frankly, writing completely out of my lane. I don't do that very often, but sometimes I do. And I love the story that Debbie Reese, who is a, a scholar of children's literature and Nambe Pueblo, a scholar of children's literature, says tells in some speeches that she gives about illustrator James Ransom. He was asked one time, you do such beautiful books. Why don't you do a book about Native ch- children or about Native things? And he said, because I've never held their children. And to me, that that's really like key. Yeah. There are plenty of opportunities in allyship and in coexistence for you to become entangled in the lives of people who are different from you, that they trust you to that point that they put your, their babies in your arms because they know that, like, as we say in Spanish, 
that you're gente, that you're like, that you're part of the people and that they can trust you. And, and when you get to that point, there's a possibility that you can write about them in ways that are going to be respectful and that are going to be informed by like deep um, and long-standing relationships with people in that community. Yeah, I was going to say that I was connecting some of the things David was bringing in all the other panelists. And I think I'm going to just throw out a whole different point of view here as a mixed race Black woman who's lived in Africa for a long time. I find myself self-censoring, like, am I authentically this enough to write about it? Am I authentically that enough to write about it? And I find myself questioning myself to the point that I freeze, like I don't publish anything because I'm so afraid of the judgment of the would-be audience. That being said, at the same time, I also believe that there is a way that when people take a voice that's not theirs, and the one I'm thinking of mostly is the help, it can damage. And so that damage, I think, is heartfelt that I can self-center myself out of the market. And so when I see other people boldly take those creative steps, I'm always thinking, wow. And then it does tend to be people who have privilege already. And so I feel that that's something that's worth thinking about as writers is where do we self where do we self-censor and then what gives other people the voice that we might be holding back? And I do think that's where it connects to the money and the bestsellers lists and who's validated and who's not validated. Let's see, I saw a really good question in here that I wanted to get in. So someone has put here in the comment, there's research on one side of this process or equation, I would say, but also the issue of sensitivity. What about that? There's research and then there's also sensitivity. What about someone like Susan Strait? I actually used to be a sensitivity reader, so I can start off the discussion if, okay. if you want. So I actually, as part of my research, I always have beta readers for my work. And my beta readers are not authors. They're like my friends who are Muslim or trans or whatever. I stopped being a sensitivity reader because I feel like there's this whole sort of movement among certain authors to sensitivity readers as just to give themselves permission to write certain characters. And what I was encountering more than anything in sensitivity reads was that I didn't see a real reason to have a diverse character in. They were just thrown in. And maybe it was somebody well-intentioned who just wanted to put somebody in. I think what Carla was saying was interesting because I'm high caste. And so when I write a low caste character, even though technically our identities are similar, I have to think a lot about my privilege. So even like within our identities, we have to confront that. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're just writing a character who is outside of your experience for money, or just for the sake of it, it's usually not done with sensitivity or with, I hate the word authenticity, but if you're just going to throw a black or a brown character in there or an immigrant character in there to be the sidekick, then it's just not going to read true. But if you're throwing them in because there's some plot that has to do with immigration, then that sort of makes more sense to me. 
Yeah, too often we're thrown in there as central casting, supporting, or backdrop people. I, I had a question for you, though. Why do you hate the word of authenticity? Yeah, I'm a South Asian immigrant. And so there's always this question of whether I'm like brown enough or immigrant okay. enough. And so okay. authenticity has definitely been weaponized in my particular community. And I write a lot about caste and privilege, and I get a lot of hate mail about not being authentic. Mm-hmm. And the word has been poisoned for me a little bit because there's also, and I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but within my community, I'm definitely not brown enough because I'm not religious enough, or I, I don't believe that caste, I believe that casteism should no longer exist. And that makes me a traitor. So there's politics within communities as well. And I sometimes feel like authenticity is used to keep people out of their own communities. Yeah. It's, I always say there are as many ways of being Mexican-American as there are Mexican-Americans. And I, I often get into debates about the term Latinx, for example, or Latinx, as some people say in English, because there are plenty of Mexican-Americans and other people of Latin American descent that despise the word, frankly, because there's a lot of queer media in our community. And so having grown up as a pansexual, you know, queer Chicano on the border, I experienced a lot of that nonsense myself as a kid, as a teenager. And as a young adult, and I don't have a lot of patience for it. So uh, people outside of the community, maybe I don't talk about it too much to them, but authenticity also rubs me the wrong way. And I totally agree with the idea of sometimes even bringing in cultural experts, sensitivity readers, if you will, from your own community, because you're writing like multiplicity of voices and you just want like another set of, in my case, Chicanx eyes on what you're writing, just to, to give you feedback, just that maybe you've not seen something that they'll see at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who else has served as a sensitivity reader? I have David, a bunch you of have? Yeah. Is there anybody here who refuses to serve as a sensitivity reader? I do now because I was one. <laughs> so now I refuse. I refuse. I did have one author who asked me to read an early draft of her manuscript. And there was a scene in her book between a white protagonist and an African-American nurse in a hospital. So already we have the central casting character in there. But in the dialogue, she had written that the nurse responded to in a soft black voice. And I wrote on her, (laughs) the facial expressions, I wrote on her manuscript, I said, what is that? What kind of voice is this? I've never heard a, a soft black voice. And her response was that African-Americans tend to have lower voices. And I said, well, that's not always the case, but if that is what you meant, it's your job to transmit in the narrative a less preposterous way of delivering that. Because what's next? A soft bisexual voice, a soft Native American voice, a soft trans voice. If you're going to feature a Chicana or a Latina character, what voice will you give them? a soft accented voice, when we all know very well that not every brown voice is accented and those that are don't have all identical accents. When I lived in Atlanta for six years, when I first moved there, I'm a native New Yorker, all Southern accents sounded alike to me. But after living there for a while, I could actually tell which part of the state people were from. Were they from the Deep South or the Mid-South? Were they country or city? The UK, there's a wide variety of accents that divulge the same kind of information. 
So um, leading up to the question that Melody Fuller has asked here, which is how can you write about class differences within memoir and nonfiction with, she's asking specifically about African-American people. I'm asking in general. She does say that she's class fluid, raised upper middle class and upper class African-Americans want perfect pages. Does that make sense to me, Melody? It does. And we could spend the whole evening speaking just about that. I've been told when I've spoken with publishers on the phone, they're like, oh, we got into your story or we looked at you online and we thought you were white. So I see the eye rolling, but it, it's, it happens a lot. It still happens. It's very annoying, also painful. So does anyone want to speak to that? I, instead of speaking to it personally, I think that a really good example of nonfiction that explores the the dialectics and also the complexity of this is Eulabis's Notes from No Man's Land. And Eulabis is a white middle-class writer, professor at Northwestern, and writes about class and race in this really fascinating intersection and does so with grace and a sense of curiosity and dignity. So instead of me waxing about any kind of wisdom I would have about it, consult with Eula because she did it really damn well. And it's a great book. I think I was going to say earlier, I saw another question about writing about Native American people, but I think it connects a little bit to Melody's question as well, is that a certain amount of awareness about just the times we live in is always important. So I know the Native American, someone, it's in the those questions that are coming up. In the indigenous and Native American community, they actually passed an act, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. Please do not steal our culture. We've been stolen from too much. There's a stand that has been taken by the community. So if people are writing about Native American people are not like aware of what how the community feels about cultural appropriation, then, then that's a flaw. That's a flaw on the part of the author and the author should be willing to take responsibility for that. And connecting to Melody's question, again, in, in the African-American community, at least my mom's <laughs> Jack and Jill family in Tuskegee, Alabama, this idea of pre presenting the perfect image is really important because we've been so pathologized. So I think it's fair. I don't believe in self-censorship, but I feel that knowing who you are and where your community stands is like just going to make it a better book if you're willing to take the heat. And I'm talking to myself because I haven't been willing to take the heat, but <laughs> I, I do believe that those places come from a really real place. Yeah. And just for members of our audience that aren't familiar with Jack and Jill, it's an upper crust African-American organization. You generally have to be fairly moneyed to be in that organization. We also have others. There's the girlfriends, the links. There are a number. And if you're writing characters from that realm, publishers are definitely going to be disappointed because they don't fit the, the stereotypes. So I'm going to ask 
Do you know any writers, any, I'm going to say cis white writers who are doing an excellent job of representing the other in their work? So I'll take a chance here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought when Sue Monk Kidd wrote The Secret Life of Bees, mm. I, I tried to figure out like, who is this person and where are they coming from? And it wasn't totally a story about the other, but I felt like the success in that book for me personally, I, I did like that book, came from the fact that she blended her personal experience as a Southern white woman with writing this other story that she was trying to tell. And that's when I feel it works. And again, the elements of the help that did work came from that same way of like where, and I know the help is very controversial. So I know I'm opening up a big can of worms here, but I'm saying when the person actually stands in their own flawed identity and tries to build some sort of a bridge, I feel like that's a little more interesting than just writing about the other. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. I also loved that book. What about across economic and gender identity strata? Who's so I, I was actually going to say, um, this is flipping the question a little bit, but Alana Massad is a non-binary writer and their book, All My Mother's Lovers, looks at whiteness in a way that I've never seen before. And so the characters of color in the book just feel, I don't know, they feel better to me just because the narrator who is white is reflective about the narrators are reflective about her whiteness. You often read books about white characters where their race is not named because they're just assumed to be the default. Right. But in this book, whiteness and sexuality are both very intertwined and class is intertwined. So I, I just thought their book was a really good way to move away from the default cis, hetero, white, mm -hmm. middle class norm. And I'll, I'll put the name in the chat. It's that really, would be it's great. A really great book. Yeah. yeah. Because I write mainly books for, for children and teens, the name that pops into my head right away is Joe Hayes. He's in his 70s now, and he's written like tons and tons of books for children and teens, and mainly books that are centered on Mexican-American border traditions. Because he grew up his entire life in the Mexican-American community in a small town in New Mexico, and he speaks Spanish beautifully and writes in Spanish beautifully. And he is definitely white and you know, his, his entire family for generations has been white and he can tap into those traditions as well. But he just does an incredible job of retelling folk tales and so forth and writing in English and in Spanish. And his books are widely read in schools along the border where there's a really high percentage of Mexican-American students and they uh, respond really well to them. It's, the books are used on a lot of uh, really successful literacy programs. And he, that's the kind of person that, to go back to Debbie Reese's comment, that the Mexican-American community will allow this man to hold their babies. And, mm -hmm. and so you know, he, he does a really convincing job. So there, there are people who did. Mm -hmm. So New York Times book critic Perul Segal said that about American Dirt, his description was what thin creations these characters are. So you, you don't need to have a dog in the American Dirt fight to answer this, but how do you determine personally when an author has crossed the line between incorporating necessary identifiable cultural elements 
and stereotyping or tokenism or cultural appropriation for you. So I actually more often experience the opposite. And I think it's because I actually, I write for teens also and I review a lot of books for teens. I often read books where there is a sidekick who is like South Asian or black or Latinx. And they're basically a white person who like eats chicken curry for dinner. So like, because when like, when I'm writing about my family, there are things that I put in or a family like mine, there are things I put in subconsciously, like the code switching between languages or a certain attitude my mother will have that I know many other South Asian mothers have that just feels, so the character feels three-dimensional. I often have the issue where I feel like a character is just sort of, you know, like, um, Lizette, you talked about central casting. Yes. It's like when Emma Stone plays an Asian character, it's it's not quite right. Yep. It doesn't ring true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it basically just boils down to when a character is essentialized for, they're almost like just decorated yep. with kind of cultural monikers. We feel that. It's hard to identify a line, but you definitely can see essentialization and exoticization if you want to look at it from the positive spin. And I put that in air quotes <laughs> because it's just as dangerous as denigration of a culture. But no, no matter what, if there's any way to really describe it, it feels like ornaments on a Christmas tree instead of this kind of, as Matangi had mentioned, this kind of fleshed out character that also have these kind of identifiable cultural monikers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the trick when you're reading it, because you can notice this about protagonists that are not from your background, but are not white. If you, I always, that's the, I guess the trick or the test is if I change their name to like Jane Smith or Bob Brown, is it still is the character untouched? Is the character unchanged? If I swap the 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 curry chicken for Kentucky Fried Chicken, is it gonna be the same thing? And if so, then that writer has not done their due diligence and and is not really representing those characters and maybe needs to spend some time. I think that one of the the biggest problems that we really haven't gotten at, although Carla hinted at this with her own sense of self-censure, going back to my friend Daniel Jose Elder, because he always writes great stuff. He's got this great article on writing the other and the self. And I think that people who are urgently wanting to write other cultures and are demanding and quoting people and saying, I should have the right to write these other cultures, the question that I'll ask themselves is, can I write myself? And have I turned the spotlight of critical um, analysis on myself? If I Have I explored myself and written about that and gone into all these nooks and crannies and crevices of my soul to the point that I understand what it is to be a human being from the inside out in, in a writerly way? Do you understand all of the ups and downs of your own culture and your own place in it and your rootedness and geography and heritage and culture. One of the things that I tell white writers in workshops is quit writing about like the white experience because that shit doesn't exist. It's manufactured to retain power. Write about you, write about your rootedness and the place where you live. You know, I had some uh, a student one time who wanted to write a, a, a teen fantasy series set in, in New Jersey in the town that this person is from, but they basically read like Harry Potter. I'm like, this, this is not New Jersey. This is your 
imitation of British fantasy. What does a magical school in New Jersey look like? It needs to feel like New Jersey. Yes, Maya. I also, I want to bring in, in this experience. I've, I have a book coming out in April and it's called The Violence Almanac and it is a portrait of violence in California. And one of my goals was to capture the California landscape. And there was no way that I could write about the California social landscape without having lots of characters that are outside of my own identity. And I felt like I would be doing a disservice if I was to write a series of characters that were, because that's not representing California. So I had the, I had this kind of ethical conundrum, like what do I do in order to, for lack of a better term, authentically represent California as a portrait? I had to ask myself, okay, if I'm going to try to accurately represent California, then I'm going to have to write across difference. I have Black female characters. I have Latina trans characters. I even have some of them in lead roles in, in the collection of short stories. And I spent so much time performing ethnographic interviews, communicating with people, entering into communities. But then ultimately what David is talking about is understanding myself in relationship to those communities, understanding where my privilege enters in, where I might be exacting the white default, which of course I'm going to do, and shutting that shit down as soon as I could so that I could have open eyes and write with that sense of empathy and also understanding knowing that I wasn't going to get it exactly right, but knowing that I had a commitment to do it. And is it dangerous? Yes. But I just wanted, because I'm seeing a lot of these comments in the chat where people seem like they're upset that we're talking about how problematic it is to represent. Yes, it is. It doesn't mean that it can't be done, but you have to work your ass off to ensure that you're not bringing your own sense of hegemonic supremacy into the language. You can do it, but you got to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I also have noticed that theme coming up in the comments. And so we know that there are writers out there who are genuinely endeavoring to do a good, credible job of incorporating representation in their work. Writers who do want to honor and respect, they don't want to irritate, they don't want to uplift or showcase ignorance. Imagine that you are an author seeking to do this yourself, and some of you have, Maya's just described his upcoming book. What strategies would you suggest employing to ensure that you're doing a good job depicting others' experiences in an authentic way? How would you go about, for example, educating yourself on systemic issues or even economic issues or class issues? What can you do other than just having a friendship group in the other to educate yourself? Other than just having beta readers from different backgrounds. And I would suggest think about an audience of that demographic reading your work. That would be one of my suggestions. But Bhatangi, go for it. Yeah, I'm just going to talk briefly because I think I mentioned this a little bit before, but my last book, I did three years of in-depth ethnographic research where I was going into slums every single day. Um, And I was actually doing this for an academic project and it then became two novels. 
I did interviews with people from the groups that I was working with. I read about probably 30 books of life stories from different people, different characters' perspectives. I had beta readers, as Lisette mentioned. And I also, I only wrote about groups where I had formed strong friendships and relationships. So I had friends who lived in slums who were queer and who were trans. And because I was part of their communities, I felt comfortable writing about it. Now, I now have a five-year-old and no child care during a pandemic. So I can't go do a three-year ethnographic research project every time I want to write a book. But I do think that it's important to think about how to do research in creative ways. And that if you're a fiction writer, you have to do just as much research as if you're writing a work of nonfiction as someone who's written both. I think it looks different for different people, but you just, you have to do the work. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering for our audience, if you can just give a nutshell description of what ethnographic reflexive research is. Sure. And because I saw Lynn's comment, I saw Lynn's comment where she's like, stop bitching and give us some insight. I would like to be able to help in that in regard. The ethnographic research is born out of anthropology, which has lots of problems, and especially in representation on an academic level. But around the 1940s and 50s, there, there was this movement to incorporate what we call reflexive ethnographic research, and it's inspired by Victor Turner's work. And then Bell Hooks does quite a bit of it as well, who is my hero. And even on a creative level, Anna Devera Smith, who people might know from like Twilight Los Angeles and more like theater work. But it's this idea that you are doing deep research into a culture that is not your own, usually incorporating lots of interview processes as well. But you also are consistently reflecting not only on the information that the interview subjects and the culture is providing you, but you're also constantly meditating on how you're interpreting that information, the way you are reading the information that they provide in the interviews and reflecting on where you might be misinterpreting based on your own circumstance, your own perspective, and then highlighting wherever you think that your blind spots occur and you meditate on those and you try to chisel away at them so that you get to something that might be more uh, in line with the accuracy that's being presented to you and the research that's being provided. This is in a nutshell, and I'm really sorry if that's not very articulate, but I did put in the chat, there is a really good beginning ethnographic text that's very accessible called Shane the Lone Ethnographer. And I think it does a great job at especially for writers or anyone doing creative expressions to utilize these reflexive processes. Yeah, I think that one thing that comes to mind that's like a super easy way into this and maybe even a tool for getting you to reflect on whether you're the right person to tell a story is read, I think of like Janine Cummins. Janine Cummins, is she proposes to herself she's going to write about immigration issues in Mexico, whatever, read lots and lots of books by Mexicans, not just about immigration issues, but all kinds of books so that you can get a feel for the language, the, the culture, 
the different class dynamics and the different racial dynamics. And there's so much colorism in Mexico. And, you know, I live part of the year in Mexico. My wife's from Mexico. My great grandparents from Mexico. It's a complex society. And I have read books by Mexican authors my entire life. And so when I set out to write about a character in Mexico, I've got like a frame of reference that comes from my own life and from reading as well. And for this space hopper series that I was talking about called The Path, the first book, The Blue Spangled Blue, each book is on a different planet. And this particular planet, 700 years in the future, is peopled by immigrants from the, the asteroid belt who themselves were descendants of African and Indigenous American and Southeast Asian workers, miners who went to the belt. And so the culture and the language and all these things that I created and projected 700 years in the future, it, I literally have spent 25 years writing the book. I created the language. I thought about all these different the, the different cultures that were coming together and how they would weave together. I studied Zulu and Swahili and Tosa and Nahuatl and, and, and Yucateco, which is a Maya language. I studied Sanskrit. I studied Korean and Japanese. I did all this work because I wanted, because I'm, I'm trying to write a book about the future of humanity and a, a path forward in order to do that. Like if I was going to do it seriously, instead of just because I'm trying to make a buck off of an adventure story, it, it takes work. That's what work is wanting it so bad and wanting to put that vision forward that to represent California like, like Maya is doing or to try to represent the future of humanity like what I'm trying to do or whatever it is. And when you have to write a multiplicity of voices, you have to like shatter yourself and rebuild yourself so that these voices have a space in your in your own soul. That is hard work. It, it is it's hard work that takes a lot of introspection and humility. And the, the scary realization that you may at some point fuck up and all of this work will be for naught. And, and then you will have to like publicly do something to fix that. The thing that you did, it is scary work, but it can also be really rewarding work if you do. Here's an interesting question that literally just came in. Is it better? Is it preferable to write a character in a story who's not from your background, not the main character and risk getting them wrong? or play it safe and only write characters familiar to you. So this kind of goes back to what we've all learned about, right? But of course, we want to expand our horizons beyond just what we know. I think that whole thing that the right characters that are familiar to you gets at what Matheny was just saying. The problem is if no secondary characters of color are familiar to you, then that's a problem with your lifestyle. That's <laughs> you need to fix that first. But I think also when we're talking about backgrounds, your background is so many things, right? So my characters in my books, all the books I have published, not all the books I've written, but all the books that somebody has bought and published so far have taken place in India. And I think a lot of writers who are from outside of India see them and are like, oh, she's Indian, so she's writing from her experience. But I'm not queer. I'm not trans. I'm not poor. I'm not dull. But somehow for me, writing a brown character who is a, like one or two identities away from me feels a lot more comfortable to me than writing a black character. And the other thing is, I think the other thing to understand is that the more sort of diverse books you read and the more diverse people you know, characters ring true when there's something human about them. And humanity is something, it sounds corny, but humanity is something we all have in common, but the ways in which the, the obstacles we face because of our identities are not, right? So my characters that I write 
may be different than me in some way, but there's always something about them that's the same. Like, or maybe my queer character, like I'm a survivor of domestic violence in my family. Sorry, that just got really dark for a second, but it's true. So maybe I'll write a character who has that experience in common with me, but something else that's not. And so there's still some truth to the character that I can distill because there's something familiar about it. So when I write characters that are different than me, I've never written a character that is like completely super different race, sexuality, gender, and everything. I tend to take like baby steps. So I don't know if that's helpful, but. What do you see, where do you see the future of, given the summer of racial reckoning that we had this past summer in particular, which surfaced not only Black Lives Matter, but many marginalized uh, communities, issues, and concerns. Where do you see the future of representation going, not just in, in books, but even in the publication industry? And do you feel optimistic about it or pessimistic about it? I feel cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I think that, I think the publishing industry, I don't even want to use the word woke up a little bit. Basically, we're nudged and are no longer snoring heavily. There's maybe a better way to put it. <laughs> and I think now they're, but they're quotaizing <laughs> to make a new word up. We've been hearing a lot of, we need to have more Black writers. We need to have more Asian writers. And in some ways, that numerical need is good in some ways. But the problem is still, and it goes back to something I said earlier, is their perception of those communities because it's so narrow. And just because there's going to be maybe twice as many you know, Black writers being published next year doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to contribute to the wide spectrum of the Black experience mm -hmm. because they might just be looking for just certain boxes to check. So it's really concerning. What we really need is to have a more wide-ranging perspective in these organizations that are making the choices. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel optimistic, but I, I feel like we have to keep fighting. Like we can't. And I don't know, like right before this event, I was reading how the Biden-Harris administration just opened another detention center on the border. And so many people were surprised by that. And I worked really hard to get Biden elected, but like I had no kind of illusions about right. how progressive he was going to be. And I feel like that's how I feel about the publishing industry right now. Like we have an opening, but we still have to keep pushing the door open. So, I, and I think there's a lot of great people. David is probably out of um, all of us, the most visibly doing this work with Dignidad, the Dignidad campaign. But I think all of us in our own ways on this panel, especially are talking about doing the work, right? <laughs> are pushing. So I think this, it feels hopeful to me, but it feels like we have a long way to go and a lot to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to second that. It feels optimistic, but it feels like a lot of the work is on, falls on our own shoulders 
And so that's always an upward battle. And so that's why I'm so grateful for this panel, because even though there may have been some uncomfortable or difficult moments, it's really great to have an open forum just to talk about these challenges. Mm -hmm. And I was at another panel where it was talking about publishers and agents and how they view writers of color. And I couldn't even sit in the panel because it was so demeaning just to hear how agents and publishers think about us. I was like, why am I going to even be in this panel? So I think there's a lot of work to be done, but I, I'm hoping that the work isn't always having to be done by the people who are just trying to get their voices heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. It, 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 there is cautious optimism, but at the same time, the incremental nature of the way publishing wants to take this is extremely frustrating and reminds me of obviously like a lot of these kinds of things remind me of that great Langston Hughes poem about a dream deferred. And there's a moment I think at which we're not going to be able to put up with this in any longer. So I have several books out and out from and I'm under contract with Penguin Random House and they do it actually a pretty good job. There's some really good imprints who that are focused on minoritized groups and so forth. I've Got a picture book coming out from Coquila the, the summer in English and in Spanish. But at the same time, uh, Penguin Random House is acquiring Simon and Schuster. So the big five that used to be the big seven are going to be the big four. And, and you just have this like concentration of more and more power and money and, and, and wealth and, and manipulation of the market in the hands of a small few. And Lee and Lowe, the indie minority owned publisher in, in New York City that putting out graphic novel of mine this fall, Every year they do this baseline survey, taking a look at the the identity of people in publishing. And it's still like more than 80% white, cis, able, the the change that needs to happen is painful. If I put in the chat, like Maya suggests, if we were to double the representation of Black authors next year, that's taking a quarter of a percent of the the published books, because that's what Black authors represent, a quarter of a percent. And doubling it to half a percent. That is not nearly what we need because Black people make up 15, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of the U.S. population. And real, true representation, true equity, would it means dismantling the system altogether and coming up with a completely new way. And I've been talking with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and, and people at the state level in New York about Things like trying to find a quasi-antitrust way of addressing the inequities in publishing. So while I'm cautiously optimistic, I think that just like Hollywood is as well, they've gotten too big and too powerful and too oppressive to be allowed to continue to exist. I'm actually pessimistic. I feel that we're riding a bump. And I'm just going to be blunt and say that I feel like we can crest, we can ride the crest of this wave probably for another six to 12 months or until the next person is assassinated by the police. Otherwise, I don't see this as being a, a bump that will be sustained. And that's primarily because I don't see the publishing industry personnel changing in there. And I'm wondering how can we get more of us into publishing. That's not an attractive path for us because we don't see enough of us ourselves in there. And also, 
I'm a little tired at this point of trying to educate the publishing industry about all of the different nuances that there are. I had this one experience where I wrote a short story in the Black vernacular and I sent it out. They accepted it, this journal, but when they sent me back the galleys with the edits, some editor had gone through and corrected every single piece of Ebonics to proper English, every single piece. And after the first page, I was like, okay, it's going to take them a page or two to catch on. But they went and did that throughout the entire manuscript. And I was livid. I was furious. And I called the um, head editor and I, I said, what's going on here? And their response was, oh, that editor probably needs more training. But I, that ticks me off as well as italicizing words from other languages and text and <laughs> My book has four languages in it, and it the italicizing thing was something that I just eventually gave up on because they were like, no one is going to recognize us. And I was like, this is how every South Indian family I know speaks. Like we all mix four or five languages and there are a billion of us. Maybe a few people actually do speak like this, but sorry, Lizette, I didn't mean, I didn't realize it was like, that's okay. I won't be really laughing, but I guess. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> what about representing not just gender identity differences and not just ethnic identity differences, but life situation differences? If I want to write a book about a character who's adopted, what's my responsibility? to make sure I'm writing an authentic narrative from the position of a person who is an adoptee? Or what about people of different religions or people who are disabled or are two-spirit or trans, et cetera? What are my responsibilities for doing that? And my responsibility in my mind is not to the publishing industry to write the characters that they're expecting to see in those skins. My responsibility is to the people who are actually inhabiting those skins. I have to be the sole dissenter. I'm, I'm not optimistic that we're going to really see future books peopled with genuine characters that are non-cis and white. Maya? I think the answer to this is, and this is a dream, but those people in those positions need to recognize the deontological ethic and responsibility of the power they have, and they need to step down. Mm. I think that is going to be the only way that this is going to change. Now, I know eventually they could retire and maybe replacements can be made, and that would be a generational shift. But I'm just going to be honest about it. I think that magazine editors, all the way up to the big four, they need to reflect and go, you know what? I have so many blind spots because I, I possess so much power. I must step down. I know that's not popular. And you think, oh, they need to make a living too. But no, it's more important to make a life of a culture. And that's a responsibility. So that's my call is not in a mean spirited way, but for them to reflect on it and go, wow, 
the best way to expedite this is to step down. Wow. So who's optimistic that's going to happen? Can I see a show of hands? <laughs> All right. We're going to get into some juicy comments here. Okay, here's an interesting one. Here's someone who is of Indian origin who has no problem with italicized words from Indian or other languages. Old school, perhaps, but I got my vocabulary by reading. If a word like Bobby is thrown in, you wouldn't find it in the dictionary and it leaves the, re the reader confused. More popular ones like chutney have made it into the dictionary, so not italicized. For this one, I have to quote David's friend, Daniel Jose Older, who made this great, I don't know if it's a TikTok, is that? It is now, it was originally it? YouTube. It was originally uh, YouTube. Now. Okay, so you know the video I'm talking about. He basically made this video showing what that would sound read aloud and it's in Spanish. I don't know, David, maybe you can do a better job explaining it than me. But yeah, it's basically, it's, that's how we talk. Go ahead, David. Yeah, when you're depicting the speech of people who naturally code switch, to put words in Italian, I think it's a little bit different when it's part of like third person narrative description or, or whatever it happens to be. But especially when you're talking about the dialogue of people or when it's a first person narrative or even a close third person, italicizing the words is like a natural and doesn't reflect the way code switching actually works. So that's, you know, really well put. But at the same, I will say, I publishers have different opinions about this. And there are some publishers who... Are, are down with the not italicizing and others who are like, you're writing an, my chapter book series, 13th Street from HarperCollins. It, the, all the characters are Latinx, they're, they're Mexican-American cousins, and they do use some Spanish. And they were pretty adamant. They're like, look, this is for early readers. These are kids ages five to nine, some of whom are just barely reading chapter books for the first time. And we want to signal to these kids who are not practiced at reading that the word they're looking at is not an English word. And so I was like, all right, I'm not going to fight you on that. I get that. But if I'm writing a YA novel with a Latinx protagonist and they're code switching, I don't want the, that to be italicized. You fight your battles where you can. And there are some people who feel like it's an overblown issue. But yeah, that's what it boils down to. Especially in the case of the Spanish, there's this added, and I think, but I think it's true of any ethnic group, any linguistic ethnic group in the United States, that is not a foreign language because it's spoken by people that live in this country. Essentially, there are no foreign languages because we're a country that doesn't have an official language and communities are bilingual and trilingual. Maya made a, a very radical call at the, the close of the panel. And here's one from an audience member that says, maybe not with book publishers, but couldn't we boycott journals that have all white editorial boards and are refusing to elevate BIPOC folks to their editorial boards. What do you make of that call? Yes. <laughs> we have the power to do that. It's not that we want to attack human beings who are trying to cultivate something beautiful, because I'm sure that those editors are, but... We have, but they also, because they want to cultivate something beautiful and humane, then they need to understand how they are actually 
becoming obstacles to that occurring. Yes. Even when I started Foglifter, I was originally on the board and I stepped down to make room. And we felt, so many of us did in the group, it was our responsibility to do that. Mm-hmm. That is serving the arts and letters. That is exactly what we need to be doing. Yay. <laughs> I want to give you guys an, an opportunity to ask a one or two questions of one another before we wrap. I'm interested in what y'all are working on. What are y'all writing? What's the new project? Everybody's quiet because it's pandemic times and none of us are writing. (laughs) Maybe, sorry, that's my situation. I'm working on a memoir right now, but yeah, starting a book revisiting childhood trauma during the pandemic was maybe not the best decision I made. So I've been working on like articles and I just, I actually got the opportunity just now to write a short story for Denver Noir. So I just wrote, my first murder mystery. So that's what, yeah. So that's what I'm on now. Carla? I'm working on two things. I've been launching or relaunching my mom's publishing company, Pacific Raven Press. So we just edited a book by Dante Clark, which is super awesome, called Close Caskets. And I am also trying to put together my own collection of poetry called Blood Lies, which I just need to finish and send out. And Maya, I know you have a book upcoming. Anything else? Yeah. Next week is the launch of Home is Where You Queer Your Heart, which is an anthology that I co-edited with Arisa White, the poet, and Monique Merrow-Williams. And the project I'm working on is called Summer of the Locusts, and it's it takes place in a West Virginia trailer park. And it's actually a way for me to try to understand the Trump supporter. So it's it's really looking at whiteness as an oppressive construct among a group of people that don't necessarily identify it. So I'm trying to empathize with those characters as a way to just broaden my understanding of the American landscape. All right. I am going to toss it back to Shuffle for our close. Thank you, Lizette. And thank you, everyone, so much. Carla, Maya, Matangi, David, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights and thoughts. I came across this quote by Arundhati Roy that I thought really summed up a lot of the discussion today. So I wanted to take a second to read that. A good or great writer may refuse to accept any responsibility or morality that society wishes to impose on her. Yet the best and the greatest of them know that if they abuse this hard-won freedom, it can only lead to bad art. With that, I want to thank all the attendees for being here. And I know we went over our time, so appreciate all the flexibility and patience that people have had. Please look up all of these amazing writers and follow their work and if you want to join in more such conversations and events do check out shuffle collective or put out the link there so thank you so much and lisa did you want to add anything as well yes a very big thank you to all of our panelists this was really enlightening and thank you for all your different views i feel like i learned a lot we're very proud to be a co-sponsor of this event and have all these writers here tonight. Just thank you so much to all our panelists and to everyone who is here tonight and stayed a little bit of extra time for this conversation. Thank you.
This conversation was recorded live. To learn more about Shuffle Collective, visit us at shuffle.do. You can also find more information and links in the show notes.